before I get started, um, I usually have to hold things a lot farther away to read them. I can't do it. The words are very small. So if I, if I mess this up, it has nothing to do with my ability to read. All right. Uh, sermon scripture today is Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Find on pages 631 through 632. The word that Isaiah, start over, sorry. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and, and Jerusalem in days to come, the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that he may walk in his points. For out of Zion shall go forth instructions and the word of the Lord from, Jeru from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up swords against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, it's clear if you just look around the room that we have entered into a new season. We are in the season of Advent, which is just a fancy kind of Latin derivative word for the arrival or the coming of something. And so we are in this Christian season where we await the arrival of Jesus, both as a baby and the story of the Gospels, but also in his future coming of reign and that peace and joy and love might rule in our lives and the whole world. And so this year, we're going to spend this Advent season with readings uh, from the lectionary from the book of Isaiah. So we're gonna be walking through Isaiah texts, which are texts that speak about this hope, this longing for peace that comes with the rule of God. And so I thought it might be helpful just to note that Isaiah is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. And uh, the Psalms are the only real book that's actually quoted even more than Isaiah in the New Testament. So, it is a book that helped underlie the gospel message when they would, wanted to talk about the hope of what was to come, both in the life of Jesus and going forward. They loved to pull from the book of Isaiah. And so the early church took that hope that the gospel speak of and said, yes, it's, it's already the case in Jesus, but it's still, there's still more to come to fruition. There's still more to come into uh, reality. It's not quite yet fully here. So we are still hoping with Isaiah for the things that he talks about. And so we're gonna spend this season looking at what Isaiah is hoping for and how we still hope for those things with him. But to do that, we have to understand the kind of conflict, the kind of bleakness, the kind of darkness that Isaiah saw in his world that they saw in the first century when Jesus was born and that we still see today because if you watch the news, things probably aren't as great as you'd love them to be. We still long for a time where peace reigns. And so it might help to know that Isaiah is actually a really complicated like compositional history text of it's written over a long period of time. It's like 66 chapters, which is a lot of text 
especially in an illiterate culture. It's a lot of prophecy being written down. Uh, and the, the book seems to span from about the 700s to the 400s. You got about 300 years of Israel's most struggling time, like of conflict after conflict after conflict. In the 700s, the kingdom of Judah in the south is looking to their northern neighbors, the nation of Israel. And Israel is planning attack on them as a way of they're trying to figure out how to navigate the fact that they're all afraid of Assyria. Assyria is the big, bad, strong nation of that time. And Assyria would come through and destroy the northern kingdom. And then they would lay siege to Jerusalem. And the prophets are having to talk to these kings about how to trust God or what God wants of you and all of this. And then you get into the 600s and the 500s and that, that fear shifts from Assyria to Babylon. And eventually Babylon comes and, and they, they take Jerusalem. They take all of your best and brightest and rip them from their homes. Take them across the empire and put them in their homeland in Babylon. And you're left wondering, is our God strong? What's, what happened here? And then you go from that to, well, no longer is Babylon the strongest. Persia comes through and they wipe out Babylon and, and Persia has a different ruling mechanism and so they send you home. But then it's like, well, how do I go back home? Who remembers the temple? Who remembers what things were like? What is it to rebuild? And in the midst of all of that, they're wondering, where is God? And when you lose in war, when you lose your family, when you lose because of famine, you too would be wondering what's to come. Where is there going to be hope? Where is life going to happen? And so, not in the same way, but we've had those same feelings ourselves. Uh, I know we're at, what, year 18 of being in Afghanistan. I remember reading a story where it was kind of like celebrating that this, like, daughter and father were serving together there. And you're like, oh, I don't... I don't know that that's my ideal, that we're in a conflict so long that generations are serving together, because we're all longing for a time where we can actually just be at peace and stop all the fighting, where we don't have to go into these conflicts anymore. And so we are longing with Isaiah for peace, and Isaiah is going to talk about that peace with this kind of catchphrase up front. He says, in days to come... Hey, there's a time coming where it's going to be different. And I always like to talk when I talk about the prophets that um, when Martin Luther King Jr. talked about having a dream, it doesn't have to be a literal dream. But that one day, people of all races can hold hands in, this, in days to come. How do I know? Because that's what God wants. That's what justice looks like. That's what peace looks like. And ultimately, I know that's going to win out. But in the days to come, what's going to happen? Isaiah says, God shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And what an incredibly beautiful image, and one that actually there's a couple prophetic texts that use some of that same language, but that we have so much peace that we repurpose our weapons. We don't need them anymore. What we do need is some more gardening tools because there's so much harvest and we need even more equipment 
to work at, at getting our crops, at feeding everybody. And since we're not at war and when there's, death isn't reigning, there's more people to feed. And this hope that at one point, what are we doing with these weapons? Let's transform them and give them new purpose and feed each other. And it's such a beautiful image. And I think about how much we struggle with this every year when it comes times for budgets. We live in the reality where our military budget uh, has to be massive. But what would it be if our Department of Agriculture or our Department of Education was the thing that had the massive budget? Where we hope and long for a time where peace reigns, where we look at feeding each other and supporting and educating each other and growing together. And I think you can get that same feeling that Isaiah has. I'd love for that day to be here. How on earth do we get there, though? Right? That's why this is still a question from the 700s BC to the 2000s AD. How do we get there? And Isaiah has a few things to say to that. First and foremost, God's temple has to be raised up. God's mountain has to be the highest one. We lift up our own agendas, our own plans, our own strategies. We get into conflict with each other. You need the unifying vision of one who wants peace, who can rule truthfully and in love. And so the way he talks about this is, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, it is not that high of a mountain. Metaphorically, that this place where you go up to the gods and their conception, that you're getting higher and higher and you're getting closer, in that kind of conception, that the highest point of all of the earth, the closest to God, is the teaching, is, is where the temple's at. Going to God is the first step of how to get to that one day. And he talks about all nations shall come to learn from God. And he talks about that, and you think about, okay, it can't just be my project, everyone has to buy in. And he talks about this in this text, and he says, all the nations shall stream to God's mountain. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Judah, that he may teach us his ways and that may, we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. One bit of good news. They want to learn in this story. It's not the kind of theocracy of coercion and forced to be taught a certain thing. They're the people of the world turning to the mountain of God and saying, we want to learn from you that they all choose to be a part of this peaceful kingdom, and that they choose to come to God to learn. And I think it's always important to remind ourselves, in this text, it's the word for Torah comes up. Let Torah come out of, uh, out of the, uh, for out of Zion shall go forth the Torah. That's the, the Hebrew word that is often used for the Bible. And in the New Testament, in part because of Greek translations and words that were used in specific allusions, we often call that word law, that we have the law. But the word more basically means instruction. And yeah, there are some laws in it, but it's 
how do I live my life? How do I understand who I am and who I, how do I relate to God? That my whole life is instructed by these words and let God's instruction reign. How do I live in a right, right relationship with God? Let me listen to what God says. And I can't help but go to this illustration. Uh, if you know anything about how Jewish kind of counting or, or, or stories might work, you usually save the most important point for the end. So you don't give your best argument up front. You give an argument, you give an argument, and then you save the most important thing to you till the end. And maybe you've seen one of my favorite musicals, Fiddler on the Roof. Anybody seen Fiddler on the Roof? I love Tevye and that story. Um, one of the most famous songs of that musical, If I Were a Rich Man. And we somewhat played that out the other, a few weeks ago. Like if you had Jeff Bezos kind of money, what would you do with it? And we talked about this clock in the mountain, this like $42 million clock in a mountain. But Tevye is playing that out of like, hey God, you know, why couldn't I have had a little small fortune? And if I were a rich man, what would I do if I had everything? Well, you know, I'd love to have an amazing house, right? Right in the middle of the town. And it gets into the extravagance. I don't want one long staircase go, just going up, one even longer going down, and one more leading nowhere just for show. Because I have the ability. I got the money for it. And he talks about if he had money, he'd, he'd, his wife would be able to order the servants around. And because I have money, people think I'm smart, and so they're going to come ask me questions. And then he sits down. <sighs> Takes a deep breath. And he says, if I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray. Maybe even have a seat by the eastern wall, the temple. And maybe... Then I'd discuss the learned books with the holy men seven hours every day, and that would be the sweetest thing of all. If I had everything, wouldn't it be so sweet to just sit as close to God as possible, to surround myself with people talking about God's word, learning from God's instruction? If I had money, that's what I'd want. And that's the sentiment he has in that story. But I wonder how often Tevye's prayer is actually our prayer. If you had the time, the energy, the money, what would you do with it? Would we actually want to be instructed by God? Would we want to learn from God? Because part of the strange game that we play is, is we long for a time where every nation comes and follows God. But maybe I don't personally want to do that. It'd be great if everybody else went along with it. But do I actually want to go and send myself and, and admit that I don't know everything, admit that God has something to teach me, that there's something I miss that I need to fully take into my life? And so how often do we actually go ourselves to sit at God's feet and to learn and to listen? And I think Isaiah recognized this problem and this dilemma because he didn't just talk about other nations not understanding. He had plenty of critiques of his own people. In the very first chapter, like the, one of the very first stanzas of Isaiah, 
He says, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel doesn't know, my people don't understand. And he goes on to talk about that the, that the people are going to go into exile because of their ignorance. And he's not afraid to mention the fact that even Israel, even Judah, even God's people don't understand, don't want to understand. And so it's not just the nations on the outside, but it's us in, on the inside too who need to be feeling that longing to learn from God because we all desperately need it. And I think that when we move to the Gospels, Jesus didn't just want us to put our names on a membership list. Jesus wanted us to be disciples. You think about the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. It's a little bit like if I were rich, but Jesus is saying, hey, I have all authority. What does he ask? Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, oh, we got to teach? Teaching them to obey all of the commands that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age, to that, that day coming soon, that thing we hope for. And I think that we often don't catch, because of the way we do students and like the way we talk about learning and education, like a disciple is just a student, but a disciple of a rabbi or a philosopher, you're supposed to apply what you learn. Like when I learn something, it should change my life, it should do something different in me. And now like teaching a class, classroom of freshmen, like I need the, the letter I want to check off the box, to get the piece of paper, but like, teaching them to obey all the commands I have for you. Like, Jesus has instructions that can change your life. And it's not enough just to mentally know them, but to learn them so much that you live them out and that you obey them because your whole life is changed by them. And I think Paul talks about this in Romans with the language of, you know, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. God has a lot to say about our minds. Obviously more than just minds, but minds is a part of it. And to be a disciple of God, we have to admit that we don't actually know everything, that we have stuff to learn, because if you know someone in your life who was not teachable, their flaw, they think they already know it. They don't have anything to gain from listening to your teaching, for your advice, your support. How many times do we go to God with that same perspective? I already have it figured out. But to go humbly to God, listening and learning. And so I wonder, how are we each learning right now? How are we each learning to be a disciple of God? What does that look like in your life? Is that... Um, spending some time just reading the Bible, spending some time reading some books about reading the Bible, uh, spending time in prayer, finding a book study. You know, like, how are we engaged in that? How do we have that passion to learn from God, to walk more humbly with our God? And I think that in the darkness of our lives, 
We have to make that decision for ourselves. Are we willing to walk towards the light, towards instruction? Or do we want to just kind of stay there? And like, it's, it's okay, I like my light level enough. And I'm inspired by those people that, that try to do more, that try to follow God even more faithfully. Sometimes it's not even religious groups. Sometimes it's other groups that are inspiring, that are even on the outside, that, that are trying to live some of this out. Um, there's a group in, that's kind of based out of San Francisco that's called, uh, it's called Swords to Plowshares, taking from the language from, from our text. And what they do is they try to help veterans when they come home get reacclimated to society, find jobs, find mental health care that, when they need that. Um, they talk about their mission. Uh, their mission is to heal wounds of war, restore dignity, hope, and self-sufficiency, and prevent and end homelessness and poverty among all veterans in need. You know, if people trying to walk into this of, man, I don't want us to be at war anymore. How do we, how do we restore people who've had to go through this? And there's a group um, called Raw Tools who transforms guns literally into gardening tools. You send them a gun, they turn it into a gardening tool. Uh, but they realize that that's not enough. Like, it's an interesting symbol. It gives hope, but they gotta do more than that. And so they talk about their mission this way. We want to be comprehensive in our efforts to move communities away from violence. It's not enough just to make a lot of tools from guns. We need to help teach each other new ways to solve our problems through relationship, dialogue, and alternative means of justice. How are we people who long and hope for a day when peace reigns so much that we put our weapons away, that we learn from God and learn how to walk together. How does the church do this? Because like, we're the ones charged with this. We have this special calling, and it should be on us. And so how do we live out this hope? And I think part of it is we have to learn that it's not enough just to be cozy around the feeling of, well, God saved me. But we are called into making disciples. We are called into being a disciple who's growing, who's learning, who's transforming. And it's not just a one and done thing, but like our lives are called to be molded. And that we should have that heart and that passion to go out into our city, into our backyard, and make new disciples. Because we often settle for, you know, I'd love to have some other church folks just join us. They're already disciples. Like, we are called to make new ones. To bring all nations into loving relationship with God, to learning, to walking with us. And so how do we prioritize that in our life? Can we actually be willing to make that like the priority when we make decisions as a church? And we're like, you know what? First and foremost, I have my own interests, my own tastes, my own kind of priorities. But more than anything, I want the people who don't yet know what love looks like, who don't know what hope and peace look like, I want them to experience that. And that's what I want most. When I sit down at the end of my list like Tevya, I just long for others to be able to be made disciples too. And so I started, you know, I mentioned Tevya earlier, and I got to move to a different musical in conclusion because I can't help the fact that it, it quotes our text, it uses our language. 
But to use the epilogue conclusion to Les Mis, and you think about Advent when it's dark, do you hear the people seeing lost in the valley of the night? It's the music of a people who are climbing to the light. For the wretched of the earth, there is a flame that never dies. Even the darkest nights will end and the sun will rise. And hear this. They will live again in freedom in the garden of the Lord. Don't we want to get back to that garden? To the tools and cultivating the earth. It goes on. They will walk behind the plowshare. They will put away the sword and the chain will be broken and all men will have their reward. And it's pleading with the audience, join us. When you love another person, you see the face of God. Do we long for what Isaiah longs for? Do we hope for that day when we are at peace with each other, learning from God? And if so, will you join me? Will you join us on that search, on that, on that journey, and that experience, and that learning? Will we journey with God to tomorrow? And that's the question for this season. With the light of Christmas coming in the horizon, and in the future reign of God that we long for, will you walk this path of peace, learning from our God? Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, you know what conflicts, what struggles each of us bring into this space. Some of us might be wrestling with ourselves, that we just can't do what we want to do and we long for and we just keep falling short of our hopes to follow you. For some of us, uh, maybe it's not having the job opportunity or the, the job is, is not going the way that we think it should uh, and it's a struggle that the everyday work life is tough. For some of us, it's uh, losing loved ones and friends and family. Lord, you know the darkness that it surrounds each of our lives. And Lord, we ask for courage to search for your truth, uh, courage to come in and to sit with you and to learn from you, knowing that your instruction, your way of life is good and is better than our own routes and our own strategies. Lord, let this community be one that seeks to be a uh, disciples of you and to make new disciples. Lord, it's in your name that I pray. Amen.